Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have given us the written word down through the centuries, and then the ultimate revelation of yourself was through the living word, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without these witnesses, and that on the basis of the written word and the living word, we know uh, how you think, we know what the issues in life are. And, Father, the real issue is our own volition, our decision to obey you, to submit to your authority, to trust you, or to try to go our own way. Father, we see that there are consequences whichever way we go. In the Old Testament, those are spelled out in terms of blessing and cursing. And as we study in our passage in Kings, we have seen how this has worked itself out in the history of Israel, as well as in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. Father, this is simply a, a um, depiction in a national scale of what is true for each of us in our personal lives, and we pray as we study your word today that we would realize that though these uh, passages address things that happened several thousand years ago, the principles are nevertheless just as real today and apply to each of our lives, and it's just as much a challenge for us to be obedient and trusting in you as it was for them, and we pray that we might be challenged to make those right decisions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Chronicles chapter 17. Second Chronicles chapter 17. This is another one of those sections in your Bible that is not quite as dog-eared, perhaps, or marked as other areas. Second Chronicles 17 through 20 tells us the story of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is, was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He, we briefly touched on him at the end of our study of First Kings, but as we get into the next chapter, the next episodes in Second Kings, I thought that it was perhaps important for us to stop a minute and find out what's been going on in the southern kingdom. In our study of Second Kings, in these first eight chapters, we have been focusing on the theme of grace 
and the theme of blessing for those who are obedient to the Lord versus those who choose the path of death the path, rather than the path of life and come under divine discipline and divine judgment and what the Bible refers to as cursing. Cursing in the Bible isn't some sort of a witchcraft or casting a uh, black magic spell or something like that. It is a term for the justice, the judgment of God. And so underlying all of these chapters, we have the doctrines related to the grace of God and the righteousness and justice of God. Now, many people think that somehow these are conflicting uh, concepts in history, that on the one hand, how can God be a loving, gracious God, and then on the other hand, he seems to be a harsh God, a wrathful God, a judgmental God. And this is a rather uh, compartmentalized way of looking at attributes of somebody who is a a person. God is a person, and like any person, he has uh, many attributes that work together in true consistency. And so we see that in the Godhead, how his love and his justice are perfectly compatible and how they work together, and that his justice is connected uh, to his righteousness. In fact, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the word group that defines his justice and righteousness are the same. Uh, the words for just, what I mean is the words for righteousness are the same words as the word for justice. In the Old Testament, it's a word group revolving around the root uh, tzaddik, which can mean righteousness in some contexts, and when it's talking about application, it is dealing with the idea of justice. In the New Testament, it is related to the the root noun decay. Uh, One form of this is decaiosune, usually translated righteousness, but you have other uh, forms of the word which then express justice. So the idea of righteousness and justice are inseparable. Righteousness relates to the absolute standards of God's character, his, his perfection, his integrity, and then justice is the application of that. But at the same time, God is also, we're told in Scripture, God of love. He loves his creatures because of who he is, not because of who they are. It is grounded in his integrity, grounded in his character. And so when his creatures violate his standard, then his justice must, in order to be consistent within himself, his justice must also bring about a judgment on that disobedience. However, at the same time, we know that God is also love, and so he is going to design a way for his justice to be satisfied and uh, his righteousness to be satisfied so that rather than bringing uh, judgment, he can bring Blessing. Now, these ideas of blessing and judgment and grace are abstract ideas and difficult for many people to really get their mental fingers around. So the scripture gives us tremendous number of historical incidents where you see these principles at play. And that's what we've been seeing in these first eight chapters of Second Kings. God is extending grace 
to the northern kingdom of Israel because of their disobedience to him. They have completely rejected him. They have defected from his leadership, and they have committed spiritual treason by going after other gods, specifically the uh, initially the false god that was set up by Jeroboam I, the golden calf that he set up in, in two locations, in Bethel in the south and, and Dan in the north, where he identified that golden calf as Yahweh, that this was the god who brought them up, brought the Jews up from Egypt. And then that deteriorated so that by the time of a king named Omri, there was the introduction of an even greater idolatry and even more perverse false religion, and that is the worship of Baal, the Phoenician god of uh, fertility, prosperity, thunder and lightning, and as uh, the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, the high priest of uh, Baal worship, was married to Ahab, the son of Omri, in some, to cement their alliance together. We see that uh, Jezebel brought with her all of the priests of Baal and the Asherah and basically began sent them out as sort of a hit squad to uh, destroy, to kill, anybody who was a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this sin reached such enormous proportions in the northern kingdom that God announced through Elijah to Elijah and through Elijah that there would eventually come uh, punishment and judgment on the house of Ahab. And this is seen in First uh, Kings chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, he announces who he would use to bring about this judgment. Hazael, the king of Syria, and through, the, through uh, Jehu, who was to be the commanding officer under uh, uh, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, and through Elisha. What Hazael would not kill, Jehu would kill. What Jehu would not kill, Elisha would kill. But even though this announcement was made, God showed his patience, his long-suffering toward Israel, as he does with us when we are disobedient, consistently holding out uh, grace and showing through the ministry of Elisha that he uh, was the God of life. He was the God who would provide for them. And it, it, on the one hand, through his uh, just as he was bringing discipline upon the nation through various military defeats, uh, through famines, through all of these other uh, things that had been identified in the Mosaic Law that God would do if they were disobedient. But at the same time, he was reaching out to them in grace. And this is what we see throughout history and throughout Scripture is that God in his justice is going to bring discipline, but he, he holds back on that. He holds back on his judgment as he always extends the offer of salvation uh, through grace. And so there are uh, national applications of that principle in the history of Israel, and there are personal applications of that in terms of our own life, whether you are a an unbeliever, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then there are principles there. God is extending to you the offer of eternal salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, he may be bringing 
uh, discipline or judgment into your life in order to get your attention to focus on the fact that there may be something more important or significant in your life than fulfilling your own lusts and pleasures and living life as you would have it. And so there are these dual aspects to God's character, judgment as well as grace. If you are a believer then God has provided everything for you to live the Christian life, but often believers become disobedient, and we too often try to solve our problems through our own efforts and in our own uh, energy. We look to other sources for help and strength and aid rather than looking to God alone. This is a uh, significant historic problem for believers ever since the uh, being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, man has sought to solve his own problems his own way rather than trusting in the grace and the provision of God. And so when we fail to do that, God is going to discipline believers. Hebrews chapter uh, 12 emphasizes this, that uh, if the, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens, and he scourges alive. The word there in the Greek has to do with a, a harsh whipping and that he will bring discipline into the life of a disobedient, continuously disobedient believer in order to bring them back into a position of obedience. So we see these principles illustrated again and again and again in all of these different episodes that we have looked at in these first eight chapters of Second Kings. Last time we finished the section where grace is extended in uh, chapter 8, I have a little chart here that we've uh, put up before, not in some time, showing the outline of Second Kings. This focuses on the period of the divided kingdom uh, from the first chapter through uh, chapter 1741. The rest of the book after 1741 focuses on the one remaining kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So this is the second half of the divided kingdom in the first 17 chapters of, of Second Kings. In the first eight chapters down through 8-6, where we stopped last time, the focus is on the ministry of Elisha under the king's Ahaziah, who was in First Kings, I mean Second Kings 1, and his brother Jehoram, also known as Joram. It gets a little confusing. We've got an Ahaziah here who is the son of Ahab, and then we're going to find out next time that there's going to be an Ahaziah, same name, in the southern kingdom. Don't get them confused. And they live very close to one another, so that tends to be confusing. And then there is an overlap between two kings who have the same name of Jehoram. And they are referred to by an alternate name, Joram. So sometimes you'll see the king of the north referred to as Joram, and sometimes as Jehoram, and then uh, in the south, there will be a son of, 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 of uh, Jehoshaphat who is also called Jehoram or Joram. So it can get confusing, so I'll try to uh, keep it straight for you by making sure we identify which kingdom, and especially since they, uh, since they overlap. So it's during this period that we see the miracles of Elisha and the principle of grace being extended before Judgment, And we finished that last time, and judgment begins in verse 7 of 1 Kings chapter 8. And this begins a new section in the book 
focusing on the reigns of various kings, the descendants of the house of Ahab, and the judgment on them. And that's going to be covered in chapters 8 through uh, through 10. And then there'll be a focus on 10 different kings in the northern kingdom, eight different kings in the southern kingdom, the antagonism between the two kingdoms, and primarily in the uh, southern kingdom, the focus of the, of the major kings are Jehu and then Athaliah, who is the evil, uh, Jehu in the north, Athaliah, who's the evil queen in the south, uh, Joash, who is going to bring tremendous revival. This is one of the high points, one of the most tremendous stories of, of grace and spiritual revival in the Old Testament, and uh, Ahaz. And then in chapter 17, we see the fall of Israel. So that's just sort of the outline. But when we look at all of the people that are involved here, like I said, it gets a little confusing. So I created this chart, and I need to brighten it up a little bit. I'll do that next time. The graph on the left that's sort of a beige color, that refers to the house of Israel, the house of Omri specifically, just just the house of Omri. So we have Omri who reigned beginning in 885, early part of the 9th century B.C., and he has uh, several sons, but the firstborn is Ahab who uh, succeeds him on the throne. And Ahab, he marries off to Jezebel, who is the one who brings all of the horrible uh, perverted Baal worship into the, the, the kingdom. They have numerous sons and daughters, but the three that are identified in Scripture are Ahaziah, who is the king who first succeeds Ahab. He has a limited reign of about a year or maybe a little more. He dies, and he is succeeded by his brother Joram or Jehoram, who reigns for a little over 12 years, and he is... Uh, the king during most of the time that we have been studying from 2 Kings 2 through 2 Kings 8. Uh, he will meet his end in the ninth chapter. And then they had a sister named Athaliah. Athaliah is just a shade less evil and horrible than her mother uh, Jezebel. And she is, uh, she is just one horrible uh, individual. And then uh, she will be married off to Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, which shows the real uh, breakdown in Jehoshaphat's decision-making ability when he entered into that, but it shows a compromise on his part with the northern kingdom. So she will marry Jehoram, and after he dies, uh, his youngest son is uh, becomes king, and he is just an absolute failure. And he only lasts a year, if that long. And then he is succeeded by his mother, who is going to bring the southern kingdom to one of its lowest points. But it's interesting, if you just look at the dates, the uh, southern kingdom goes through a period of the ninth century from uh, just a little bit before the turn of the century when Asa is king. Asa is a good king, and Jehoshaphat's a good king, and then Joash. Those are the only three good kings. But during most of that century, with the exception of 13 or 14 years uh, with Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah, the southern kingdom is in a position of blessing. They have, they have good kings. But if you look at the chart, you see that during this time of Ahab, and then uh, four years after Ahab became king, Jehoshaphat became king and reigned for uh, a number of years, and then uh, it overlapped with Ahaziah and Joram, and that fits within the 
uh, same time period that we've been studying. So I wanted to stop this morning and focus on uh, Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 17. We won't go through all of the details in Jehoshaphat. Let me just skip through these slides a minute. Uh, we won't go through all the details with Jehoshaphat because a lot of it we've covered tangentially in other, in other lessons. So I want to just hit the high points in these four chapters, 17, 18, 19, and 20, cover the uh, time period of Jehoshaphat. We learn in 17.1 that he begins to reign in the place of his father Asa. Asa was a great king. He instituted a number of revivals in the northern kingdom. He followed in the footsteps of his father David. He was very obedient, but late in life he began to... Uh, become distracted in his spiritual life and introduced some problems into the southern kingdom. And his last two years, he has some uh, problems uh, with a foot disease, and he dies fairly uh, miserably as part of God's discipline upon him for his disobedience. And he is succeeded by his son, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begins well. He begins when he's 35 years of age. He reigns for 25 years and this included a period of three years of co-regency with his father during those last two years when Asa was uh, under such uh, distress because of the divine discipline on his health. Uh, that was a time when Jehoshaphat also reigned along with him. The assessment that is given Jehoshaphat is important to pay attention to. We're told that he walked with Yahweh. He was a good king. In 1 Kings 22:43, we were told he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So the assessment from God is that uh, Jehoshaphat is overall a good king. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, but there were a couple of exceptions. It goes on to say, nevertheless, the high places, and this is the place where they would worship the false gods, the high places were not taken away. See, he was obedient to a point, but like many of us, many Christians, there's certain areas in our lives that we're just not going to allow God to straighten out. And that's the way it was with Jehoshaphat. So he went pretty far, but not all the way. But we get a little more detail of that in Second Chronicles 17, verses 3 through 4. There we're told, now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. So this indicates divine blessing on Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat is obedient to the Lord and walking with the Lord. And what I want you to pay attention to here is as we look at these ancient events and this history, that what makes the southern kingdom prosperous, what makes them strong militarily is not that they have bought into a correct economic system per se, not because they have the superior military skill or technology, but what drives all of that is the spiritual relationship of the king, of the leader in the land with God. That's the key element. See, we live in a world that is driven by empiricism. You go to university, you take numerous courses in business, you take courses in 
uh, finance, you take courses in economics, you take courses in law and politics, you go into the military, you take courses in military history, you study uh, strategy and tactics and all kinds of technology uh, of the battlefield. And we think that this is what produces success, this is what produces prosperity, and this is what gives us security. But what the Bible says is it doesn't matter how great your technology is. It doesn't matter how great your education is. What matters is your relationship to the Lord, because if you've got the right relationship to the Lord, God is going to take care of the other issues. If you don't have the right relationship to the Lord, then God is going to cause those systems, whatever they are, from economics to technology to the military, to fail at critical junctures, and there will be defeat and collapse. Because the issue that really drives everything in life is the spiritual issue, and you can't measure that in a classroom or in a laboratory uh, or anything that is uh, that is related to empiricism. You only understand that when you study the Word of God. And so we see in the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign that he uh, is spiritually obedient. He's focused on the Lord, and so the Lord is with him and blesses him, and the nation is restored to a position of military superiority and security and financial security and economic prosperity that it has not seen since the time of Solomon. And what causes that is the spiritual focus of Jehoshaphat. So we read in verse 3, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. Not just Asa, not just Solomon, but going back to David, who is the greatest example of spiritual leadership in the nation. And it says in verse 4, He sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. So at the beginning, he has completely rejected the idolatry that has taken place in the north and rejecting everything that is happening in relationship to the Baalism that's being introduced under Ahab and Jezebel in the north. Verse 5, he says, therefore, the conclusion, therefore, because of his spiritual orientation, because of his focus on God, therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor in abundance. See, the cause is his spiritual focus. It's not because of his personality. It's not because of his education. It's not because of any techniques or skills or anything else that he has. The, the driving cause of his blessing and prosperity is his relationship to God. But nobody has ever really passed the prosperity test. And no nation has passed the prosperity test. And there are certain parallels between Jehoshaphat and Solomon because when Solomon was young, his heart was completely devoted to the Lord. But as God blessed him and prospered him and he had riches and abundance and he had everything you could ever imagine in terms of the details of life, when Solomon became old, his heart was turned away from the Lord. And the bottom line on Solomon's reign was he did evil in the sight of the Lord because he brought the people into idolatry. Whenever we read that phrase, remember, 
that such and such a king did evil in the sight of the Lord, that phrase focuses on the fact that they have committed political and spiritual treason by going into idolatry. Remember, the first commandment in the Mosaic Law for Israel was that you should have no other gods before me. It is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the king, the leader in Israel. And when they would worship another god, that was an act of political and spiritual treason against God. And so when they were obedient, God would bless, and when they were disobedient, God would judge and discipline, and God brought judgment and discipline on the house of Solomon, which not in his lifetime, God put it off, but the ultimate discipline came when the kingdom split after his death. Now we go on to read in verse 6 about uh, Jehoshaphat, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. He's not, it's not just formal. He's not just going through the motions. He is enthusiastic and excited about his relationship with God, and that is the highest priority in his life. That is the way it should be with us. Coming to church isn't just something we do because it's Sunday morning. It isn't something we do because that's the way we were raised. It is because we understand that it doesn't matter what else we do in life. If we don't have this one area squared away in terms of our relationship with him, then everything else is going to collapse eventually. And so his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord, and he removed the high places and the wooden images from Judah. Now, when we go through the, the passage, and I'm not going to go through everything or read every detail here, as I said, we note four areas of positive accomplishments in the life of Jehoshaphat. The first is that because of his obedience to God, because he understood divine viewpoint truth of the scriptures, he had sound financial policies, sound fiscal policies, and therefore he had a sound economy. Because he's oriented to doctrine, he's oriented to truth, and he recognizes that he has to follow the principles of the Mosaic Law, and in there we have sound fiscal policy, and so Judah was returned to a place of prosperity, and great prosperity, the greatest it had had since the time of Solomon. Furthermore, because of their, polit- their economic strength and their military strength, some of their pagan neighbors, for example, the Philistines, uh, the Moabites, the Edomites, these are Arab nations, they were coming to uh, Jehoshaphat for protection. They were paying tribute to him because there's the rumblings off in the east of the rise of Assyria. And with this rise of the Assyrian evil empire on the east, the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites recognize that they are not going to be able to handle that, that monster alone, and so they're looking to Jehoshaphat for protection. So that's a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that uh, Israel, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, were to be a blessing to all people. So because he's obedient to God, he is able to be a blessing to his neighbors and provide protection and economic benefits and blessing by association. A second positive accomplishment under Jehoshaphat's reign is related more to his spiritual life and his focus on divine priorities. Under Jehoshaphat, 
missionary activities were inaugurated in the south he he by his third year of of reign he set aside certain groups of priests and levites who would go throughout the southern kingdom of judah teaching uh, torah teaching the law teaching doctrine to the people in the southern kingdom later on he never lost that even though we have this huge gap within his reign that we know little about from about the third year to about the uh, 20th year we know very little uh, later on when he begins to stub his toe and begin to enter into these um, alliances with the house of Ahab, he still doesn't lose that heart for the Lord. He's After the first alliance, which had to do with that battle at Ramoth-Gilead we studied in, in uh, 1 Kings 22, uh, he's rebuked by Jehu, another Jehu. We won't run into two or three Jehus. This is Jehu, the son of Hananiah, prophet. He's rebuked by him, and after that, he sends Levites into the northern kingdom, into the hill country of Ephraim, to teach the word. So he is, uh, because of his focus on the Lord, he is concerned about the teaching of the word and supporting that and seeing that spread. Uh, a third area of reform that came was in the area of the judicial in the area of the judicial. This is uh, described in chapter 19, uh, verses 5 through 11. He set up judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Take heed what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord. See, a judicial system that has can only have real integrity when they understand that they are subordinate to a higher system of law and a higher system of absolutes and that there is an external standard of righteousness that goes beyond the human sphere of of uh, relative uh, experience and so idea, human ideas of social justice. And so he informs the judges that they are to recognize that they are serving the Lord and that they are simply applying the absolutes of the Mosaic law to the circumstances. They're not to create law. They're not to uh, legislate from the bench. And that was the same idea we had in this nation when it was initially established under the Constitution that the judiciary's role was not to make law or legislate from the bench, but was simply to ascertain what was just according to the law uh, according to the law of the land. And so he established a, a judiciary with integrity, and he does that because he's oriented to the righteousness of God. If you're not oriented to the righteousness of God, you cannot have a just society or a just legal system. And see, what has happened in this nation in the last 100, 120 years is as we have thrown out the Bible, as we have become more and more infected and corrupted by the evil of Darwinism and evolution, this has impacted our understanding of the law. And if you want to understand how that connection works, then you need to listen to uh, Dr. Andy Woods, who's going to be speaking at the Chafer Conference, and that's going to be the focus of his paper this year. Andy was a lawyer in Southern California. Uh, his fa- in fact, his father, uh, Fred, who, whom I have uh, met and had lunch with a couple of times, is an appellate court judge 
in the Los Angeles area, and he was the appellate court judge that overturned the decision that was initially made to allow homosexuals into the Boy Scouts. And so Fred's really one of the good guys, and he raised a great son, and uh, Andy started off at Chafer Seminary, then went to Dallas, got his THM there and his Ph.D., and he's covered for me uh, in the past. But because of that legal background, he has a tremendous insight into how the evolutionary views of Darwinism have radically transformed our understanding of law and legislation and the judiciary in the United States. So when once you get away from that biblical foundation, then everything else starts to crumble. This is what Jehoshaphat will begin to discover when we get to the negative side. Now, the third area of reform, as I said, was the area of reforming the nation's judiciary. The fourth area of reform was that he removed the Baal cult prostitutes from the land. Now, this is what's referred to in 1 Kings 22:46. The verse reads in the New King James, And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. The New American Standard translates the rest of the Sodomites. And if you read it in the English, you think that what he's doing is he's cleaning up uh, the homosexual problem or the, what's left over of it in, in, in Judah. But that's not what's going on. The word there in the, in the Hebrew is a masculine noun based on the Hebrew verb kadash, which is the word that is translated consecrated or holy, or set apart. And it was a word that was used to, in a feminine noun to refer to the temple prostitutes, female prostitutes in the masculine form to refer to the masculine, uh, to the male cult prostitutes in Baal worship. And the uh, idea of kadash isn't holy. That's, that's a secondary or derivative idea in terms of moral purity. The core idea in kadash is to be set apart to the service of a god. And so these male and female cult prostitutes in the Baal worship were set apart to the service of their god Baal. And so that's what they were doing in their uh, perverted activities in, in the various worship areas and worship centers related to, to Baal. So what we, what is being said here is that he cleaned up the religious environment in the southern kingdom and did what the Mosaic law said to do and he got rid of these people and he, he kicked them out of the, uh, kicked them out of the land. Now there's five principles I think we see here. First of all, when your relationship with God is your number one priority, then other areas of life are going to fall into place. That's the ultimate issue. If you want happiness, stability, uh, if you want the problems of your life resolved, then the first issue is to focus on your spiritual life. And it's amazing how God works behind the scenes in bringing about the 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 solutions to our problems. It doesn't mean we won't have problems and we won't have adversity and suffering and these kinds of things. But when we're focused on the Lord, God is the one who goes before us and he's the one who makes our paths straight, which is what uh, Solomon's talking about in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He works behind the scenes in all of these other uh, secondary details. Uh, Matthew 6.33 states it this way, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Put the priority on God, and God will deal with the circumstances in your life. Second observation is that nationally, when a majority of the people are focused on divine viewpoint, the indirect result is that God is going to bless the nation. It's blessing by association. The key, though, is leadership. You can make the same application to corporations. If the leadership doesn't have integrity, if the leadership isn't focused on righteousness, then, and I don't mean that in terms of self-righteousness, but if it's not operating according to an absolute external standard, then the result is going to be catastrophe. When leadership is operating as leadership, then the people will get behind the right kind of a leader. The people always seem to get the, the leaders that reflect their priorities and their values. And this is seen all the way through the book of Judges, and it's seen all the way through uh, Second Kings. When they get a king that is focused on spiritual truth, then they follow, and they will respond to that leadership. When they get a king that is focused on apostasy, then the people respond, and they follow after, uh, after him. And usually the king will go much further than they would go. So if their heart is bent towards apostasy and they get an apostate king, he's going to take them to the logical end. He will take them much further than they would have thought. And if they are oriented to truth, then they have righteous kings, then they will take, he will lead in a direction much further than they would have anticipated. Third thing we see is that there's no wall of separation between moral and social principles and economic and judicial principles. Today we have people who think they can be uh, economically conservative and socially liberal. That's idiocy. Pure idiocy. You cannot disconnect social and moral issues from economic and legislative issues. We live in a world where these things all connect together. And we see that that's what happens in Israel. When the leader is spiritually squared away, the economics follow. Now you can't, you're never going to see that principle in any economic textbook. But that's how God set things up. There is a spiritual reality there. Fourth observation we have is that the role of the leader is to lead according to divine viewpoint. And failure to do so always leads to catastrophe. It always leads to divine judgment. It may be preceded by years or decades of God extending grace, but it always leads to judgment. And the fifth thing that we see, which is a sign of things to come, is Jehoshaphat had his priorities right, but he also got his eyes on man as the solution. And towards the end of his life, he began to enter into alliances three times with the northern kingdom, with the house of Ahab. Each time, God came along and really let him have it uh, because of his failure to trust in him. He forgot the principle of Psalm 118.8. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. And so we see judgment coming on Ahab because of his uh, failure to trust exclusively in the Lord. In the New Testament, we have a promise, a statement in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts 
good morals. And that word translated morals can mean character or habits. And so when Jehoshaphat allies himself with the north, then there are uh, consequent problems, unintended consequences that take place. First of all, there's the battle at Ramoth-Gilead where they're defeated by the Arameans. Ahab was killed. Second unintended consequence is that having seen the weakness, the southern uh, states of uh, Moab and Ammon begin to revolt against Jehoshaphat, and they, in fact, launch an attack against him. This is described in Second Chronicles chapter uh, 20. By the time he learned of the attack, they had already crossed over to the west side of the Dead Sea and were in the area of Engedi. And he had to quickly pull together an army. But first, he understood the principle. It's not the military. What is it? It's the relationship with God. So he called for a nationwide fast. He assembled the people at Jerusalem for prayer. And the prayer that he gave in, uh, verses, uh, in, in chapter 20 is one of the most remarkable prayers in all of the scripture as he calls upon the Lord. Uh, in order to protect them and to provide for them. And the next day they go into battle, and we're told that they follow the command of the Lord in verses 20 and 21. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood. Now this is real political leadership. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. That's the key. It's not getting an MBA from Harvard. It's getting a good relationship with the Lord and following biblical principles. Verse 21, when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who, who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. So what he does is he puts together a choir to sing hymns to the Lord, and that's going to lead them into battle to remind the soldiers that the real issue is spiritual, not military, not numbers, not technology. And so they go into the battle singing, Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. And God gives them a tremendous military victory. And after they finish, they head back to Jerusalem. It takes them four days, and they come close to Jerusalem. We're not sure exactly where this occurred, somewhere in a valley between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 26, on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barachah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Barachah until this day. Barach means blessing. And so they gave praise to God and thanks to God for giving them the victory. But the most egregious thing that Jehoshaphat did in his reign was that he married his son to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. We're not told when that occurred, but it was probably done to seal an alliance. may have been as early as the battle uh, before the battle of Ramoth-Gilead, but that brought misery into the life of the southern kingdom for the next uh, 15 years after he died. 
Now, the lesson that we learn from all of this is the lesson on the importance, the priority of our relationship with God. And it doesn't matter whether you're applying this to you as an individual or to your family or to your cor- a corporation or company or to a nation. The principle is the same. It is the Lord who builds the house, and those who reject him labor in vain. There is no real promotion, real success, or real prosperity apart from the Lord. There may be times of apparent prosperity as God is extending grace to us while he is waiting for us to return to him and to walk with him. But don't mistake that for the fact that somehow God is blessing you because it's really all okay. Uh, we have to understand how the righteousness and the justice of God works in connection with his grace. His grace, he extends to us first, and then there will be judgment. Now, as believers, when we're out of fellowship, there's always the opportunity to be restored to fellowship through confession of sin. We know we're going to sin. We know there are going to be times of extended uh, disobedience in our lives. But when we confess our sins, he forgives us. Sometimes those consequences come anyway because they're the natural consequences of the bad decisions we made. Sometimes he removes those consequences in grace, and frequently we never experience the results of our really bad decisions. If we were, we would all be in a world of of tremendous suffering and adversity. God is good to us. He has provided us with a perfect salvation, and he can solve any problem that we face in life. And so the lesson we learn from Jehoshaphat is a lesson of grace and the lesson of complete focus on the Lord and not to forget that and not to fail. Next time we'll come back and we'll see the judgment coming. It's, it's much like the scene at the end of the first Godfather movie. God is going to take care of all of his enemies in the house of Ahab, and it is just one slaughter after another. But... You can't understand it unless you understand the 20 or 30 years of grace that preceded it. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us, that you have given us everything related to life and godliness, that you've given us a perfect salvation, that you have recognized there's nothing we can do to make ourselves perfect or righteous. There's nothing we can do to bring approval uh, from you into our lives that we have that only because of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And all that you have to do to make that yours is to trust in him, to believe that he died for you. And the instant you do that, you are saved. You can never lose it. It can never be taken from you. You have eternal life, and you have a new life in Christ that needs to be nourished, and you need to grow and mature through the study of his word. Father, we pray that you would challenge all of us with the things we study today and that we might not forget that the real issues in life are spiritual issues. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.